Hello, you are now listening to The Lives of Writers, a podcast presented by Autofocus Books, a literary publisher of artful autobiographical writing, which you can find today at autofocuslit.com. If you'd like to support us, there's a number of ways you can do that. First, by checking out our books over at autofocuslit.com books, which is where you can also find a t-shirt with the logo for this podcast on it, which you can buy. You can also sign up for the newsletter, which is starting this year, over at autofocuslit.com email. You can also use the app you're on to rate the podcast or maybe write a quick review if you like it. And finally, of course, you can just tell some friends who you think might like the show. Okay, that's the advertisement. Here we go. Once again, welcome back. This is The Lives of Writers. Thanks for listening. I am the publisher of Autofocus Books and producer of this podcast, Michael Wheaton. Today's episode of The Lives of Writers is hosted by Aaron Slaughter. Aaron Slaughter is the author of the short story collection, A Manual for How to Love Us, and the poetry collections, The Sorrow Festival, and I will tell this story to the sun until you realize that you are the sun. She is the managing editor of Autofocus and was formerly the editor co-founder of the literary journal and chapbook press, The Hunger. Her writing has appeared in LitHub, Electric Literature, Craft, The Rumpus, Prairie Schooner, Split Lip, and elsewhere. Coming up very soon, you'll hear Aaron in conversation with Chin Sun Lee. Chin Sun Lee is the author of the debut novel, Upcountry, which came out this past fall with Unnamed Press. She's also a contributor to Let Me Say This, a Dolly Parton poetry anthology, and the New York Times bestselling anthology, Women in Clothes. Her stories, essays, and reviews have appeared in Electric Literature, LitHub, The Georgia Review, The Rumpus, Joyland, The Believer Lager, and other places. All right, let's get to it. This is Aaron Slaughter's conversation with Chin Sun Lee. It was really intense, though. Um, you know, it was just kind of, I was telling friends, it was like being at a wedding reception every other night, you know, mm-hmm. um, because so many of my friends showed up for me and it was it was wonderful. But the pace was just so crazy, you know, a lot yeah. of cities and flying around and jet lag and then performing and then, you know, greeting people. And um, yeah, it, it was a lot because, you know, writers are at least I am generally introspective, you know, Um, I can definitely be extroverted and social at moments, but um, that kind of focused, you know, performance and extroversion without the downtime was, yeah, it was intense, Mm -hmm. but. um, Yeah. I did that in the spring when I was also on the academic job market (laughs) and finishing my PhD. And there was about a month there where I don't, I think I was home like a cumulative three days or something. Uh, and oh it's strange because it's the most beautiful thing, right? To hear people respond to your work, this the stuff that you've been writing that you never knew if it would see the light of day and to hear people be affected by it is amazing. Uh, but you're kind of always performing yourself even in those interactions a little bit and it can be exhausting. Yeah, it's just, it's a lot. It's a, it's a lot of stimulation. I can't believe you were doing that. And then did, <laughs> did you, did you, cause your book also came out in the mm-hmm. spring. So yep. were you doing a little bit of a book? promotion as well? I did. Yeah, I did a tour. Uh, it was really like March and April. And then I think I did something in the summer, but it was it was mostly March and April, which was also like peak campus visit time oh for academic God. jobs and that kind of stuff. I actually oh ended God. up canceling a reading uh, to get the job that I now have. Okay. <laughs> so very narrowly went unemployed if I hadn't done that. Um, yeah, but it, yeah it priorities. That's yeah. good. <laughs> well, so your book has been out about a month and we're going to get to Upcountry. I'm really excited to talk about it. Uh, how does it feel a month out? What has the process been like seeing your book go out into the world? It's been surreal and fantastic and exhausting and all of that. Um, you know, I'm I'm relieved to have sort of the bulk of the PR in the rearview mirror. Um, but you know, it's funny because you know we talked obviously earlier about just the exhaustion level and the frenetic pace. But now that most of it's behind me, um, 
You know, I grew actually um, as a writer and um, certainly as a public speaker, you know, and it's funny because um, you're probably aware I had a job for a long time before in the fashion industry and I was used to giving presentations, you know, so it's not like I'm not comfortable doing that, but you always have that fear of, oh God, you know, I'm going to say something completely stupid. Um, and a couple of times actually towards the end, cause I was so tired, I, I did kind of disassociate, <laughs> <laughs> but then I just owned up to it. You know, I was like, what, wait, what was that question? You know, how did you start that? And I think, um, yeah, you know, I just learned that you just have to kind of relax into the moment and you can mess up, but as long as you're not freaked out about it, you know, the audience isn't going to be either. So, um, yeah, I, I kind of, I'm amazed at myself that I was able to do it, you know, and um, I think part of it is just like, you know, and you know, like as it leads up to publication, everything starts to amplify and go a lot faster and all these, you know, press things are being thrown at you. So you just kind of can't overthink it. You know, you just have to sort of be in the moment. So, yeah. And I'm what glad ways, it's over. <laughs> yeah. In what ways have the public speaking for your book felt different than the public speaking that you did when you were a fashion designer? Oh, um, I think it's the fact that when I was a clothing designer, you know, the presentations I used to give were very, you know, they're pretty formulaic. You're just basically discussing and talking about this style and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And you're making presentations to buyers. So it's a lot less, I guess, um, uh, open to um, ad lib, you know, or improvisation. Whereas I think even though most of these events, you know, um, at bookstores involved conversation partners and we kind of in advance discuss, you know, a little bit what we talk about, you don't really know, you know. Um, and then you also don't know what the audience is going to, you know, toss at you. Mm -hmm. But um, and, and the other factor is after you do a few of them, you know, certain questions are very similar and then you start to see yourself responding in, in the same way. And I don't like to do that. You know, you want to kind of keep it fresh for yourself too, you know? So it's, it's just that sort of um, calibrating of, you know, how do I answer this question in a way that's concise, you know, um, but isn't so formulaic, you know, even if you've been given that a version of those questions before. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if you felt this way, but it, it felt a little bit like being a politician, sort of, where you, you start to, <laughs> to refine your like diplomatic answer, yeah. uh, which does feel a little strange, especially, you know, writers being, like you said, in sort of more introverted beings typically, and then also being very thoughtful people and people who have, you know, genuine uh, something genuine that they want to give the world. It can be it can be strange to, to get into the PR publishing side of that. Right. Yeah. But, you know, as as you mentioned even earlier, too, I think the best part um, was to get sometimes these audience questions that um, brought up connections that they saw in the novel that I totally see why they, you know, made that connection. But I was not aware of setting up, you know, those correlations. And that was really kind of wonderful for me, you know, um, just, oh, wow, you, you just constantly you know, learn what your subconscious was up to, you know, mm -hmm. because when you're in the midst of writing something, you're so deep into the project, a lot of times, you know, and it takes years, you know, you don't really remember exactly why you made certain decisions, you know, um, and so that was gratifying to, to get some questions thrown at me that were so clearly like, oh, this reader paid attention and, you know, they saw this connection and yeah, you're right. You know, I never thought of that. Um, Are there yeah. any questions or connections that you remember that surprised you? Yeah. Um, I'm trying to like not give away spoilers, but there was, there was one, you know, there, there's a scene in I think chapter three where Claire encounters a rat you know, um, in a trap and it's very harrowing. And one of my readers connected that to um, basically uh, an incident that happens to her later in the book. Um, and I never intended that actually, you know, um, trap being the connector. And, and you know what I mean? I think yeah. I, I don't want the, <laughs> the, um, the audience yet who haven't mm -hmm. read the book, but um that, that surprised me because I, I, you know, it wasn't a foreshadowing that I intended and yet it kind of happened that way. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's exciting. I'm really excited to talk about Upcountry. I'm going to ask you a couple of uh, things sort of leading up to that before we get to the book itself. Um, I'm curious, you know, when you were growing up, did arts have a place in your house? Were there other family members that were artists? I, I heard you say on another interview that your sister was a violinist. Is that correct? Yeah. 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 So was there um, some kind of encouragement of going into the arts among your family? There was. And um, it's kind of unusual because I think the cliched, you know, um, uh, view of an Asian family, a traditional Asian family is that, oh, you're supposed to grow up and be a doctor or a lawyer or one of those things. And perhaps actually that was more the case for my brother. He was the only boy. Um, and, you know, it Korean traditional culture being fairly patriarchal, he got a lot more attention and special, you know, favors, um, uh, less restrictions, but um, he definitely had more pressure to do the kind of sort of academic successful route. And because, you know, I'm a girl um, and I was also the youngest, I think um, my parents had less pressure for me in terms of, oh, um, what is your career going to be? But frankly, that's because they didn't anticipate I needed to have a career. <laughs> you know, um, I was really told that my main purpose was to, you know, marry and have children and do the traditional female role. But um, my father was um, a really, you know, kind of uh, entrepreneurial business person, but he was actually really creative. Um, he taught himself how to play the violin, you know, um, and it's that's really hard to do. And I think that love of music um, definitely was passed down to, you know, my sister who became a violinist. Um, so I think like, you know, and, and education was obviously important. I don't know. You know, it's not like they grew up, um, uh, it's not like I grew up, um, you know, really appreciating literature per se, you know, from my parents. That was, I think, more me coming to the States when I was very young and I didn't know how to speak English. And I distinctly remember um, prior to kindergarten, you know, my parents, we, we had just moved to Los Angeles from Korea and um, they had a teacher tutor me, you know, and I remember it really clearly just kind of trying to struggle to understand the language. But kids, you know, I think are really fast learners. And so um, that kind of early exposure to um, trying to articulate what I'm feeling inside into language was, I think, the precursor that made me fascinated with language. So I was, once I learned how to read and, you know, um, speak English, that I just like, I loved reading. And um, also, I think as a, as a kid, you know, so there are, were four people, you know, four kids in my family, and my oldest sister is nine years older than me, and then um, my sister below her was six years older than me, and then there was my brother, right? And boys and girls didn't really play, so, and my older sisters were much older, you know? So in a way, I kind of sometimes felt like not an only child, but definitely, you know, isolated, you know, from um, my siblings, and so um, dolls and books were my company, yeah. But um, yeah, my, my parents definitely encouraged me, you know, to be yeah. creative. Did your passion for writing come along with your passion for reading or did that enter your life later? Um, you know, I know that I started writing as a little kid <laughs> because my father had saved some kind of silly little, you know, story that I wrote when I was four years old. So clearly, you know, there that was in there. But by the time I was actually, you know, in junior high, high school, um, I I had thought I would maybe want to be a writer. Um, I actually had uh, a high school English teacher pull me aside and tell me, you know, when it's time to look into colleges, um, I think you should be a writer. And I was completely flattered, but I don't know. I just, it, it wasn't pragmatic, you know, so even though I was not... Um, given the brunt of pressure, you know, in the same way that my brother was, we were still expected, you know, to, to try to, you know, earn an income. Um, and so I knew like writing was not very practical. And this was like in the now like late 80s, you know, um, and that's when the domestic fashion market was completely exploding. And, you know, I liked clothes. I was a girl. <laughs> so I kind of went, you know, that route instead. But yeah, like I was always reading. I was always 
um, interested in writing, and I think I was just too, you know, fearful of um, the the difficulty of what that life, you know, entailed as a young person. Yeah, I relate to that. I was a uh, a neuroscience major before I was a creative writing oh, major wow. because I was, and I, I knew, I think as soon as I was, you know, 17, 18, I was writing a lot and books sort of saved my life and you yeah. know, were my company and my friends. And I knew kind of that I wanted sort of similar to you, that there was a passion there, that there was an interest, had teachers encouraging me. And I was like, but I want to be independent. I don't want to be without a home or without a job. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and then, so I tell my students now who have the same concerns, there are a lot of ways to make your life in writing, but it can be hard. It can be hard, period. And it can be hard to know what those directions are when you're young and you're first going into it. Yeah. And, um, you know, like now in retrospect, um, I'm not, I'm not sorry that I went into, you know, design. It gave me exposure to a life that I might not have been able to access, you know, if I'd gone straight into writing and, you know, was an intern struggling and trying to be in New York city. Um, I, you know, I got to travel. Um, I, interacted with a lot of different people who are older than me and professionals. And then, you know, I got to manage people. So there's a whole wealth of life experience. Um, and mostly, you know, the fact that I got to travel, you know, to, to different countries and see different customs. So that's not something I regret, but I, I do think that I, I stayed longer. You know, if I had to do it over again, I wish I'd started writing like at least, you know, five to 10 years before I actually started to. But hey, it's it's worked out okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, so you recently uh, were named one of Poets and Writers' uh, 50 Over 50 debut novelists. Congratulations on that. Um, Thank you. It's it's five over 50. Five over 50. I'm so sorry. Yes. <laughs> five over 50. Um, and are there ways that you feel like uh, the writing and publishing process of this book have been different for you now than they would have been if you were, say, 30 or 40 uh, or 25 when you were publishing your first novel? Well, I mean, that would have been, you know, again, like 25 years ago. But and I think in some ways, maybe it would have been easier, you know, because the field was, was not as competitive. Um, but on the other hand, as an Asian person, you know, um, frankly, 25 years ago, um, there wasn't the proliferation, you know, of kind of accepting other voices in, you know, publishing. Um, I think I would have been much more marginalized and expected, for instance, to write only about, you know, the Asian diaspora. Um, but on the other hand, being a young writer, I think um, that this remains, you know, true. Um, it's great that we honor, you know, writers over 50 now, but we still, I think, as a society tend to kind of promote, ooh, you know, the the young debut author and, um, uh, oh, you know, youth is like uh, the prod, you know, the prodigy sort of aspect is still, I think, really kind of um, romanticized, you know, in American culture, especially. Yeah, I really wonder about, you know, for example, there is a, a first time novelist who seems, I don't know her age, but seems very young, who won the National Book Award uh, last year. Mm. And I really wonder what kind of pressure that must put on her for her next one or for the, you know, the next 30 years of her career, potentially. Um, there's definitely benefits, right, to being the sort of shiny new yeah. person. Um, but, but I can't imagine. Um, and I'm curious if, you know, having just had this book come out now that book tour is winding down and some of the publicity for it is winding down. Do you feel any pressure for the next project or is that something on your mind right now? Um, a little pressure only in that, you know, I, so it, this first book took a while to um, get published. You know, I started drafting it in 2015. It was, um, I had a first draft in 2018 but, you know, it took a while um, to find a publisher. So in the interim, while I was trying to, um, you know, sell this first book um, and it wasn't really uh, meeting any um, success, I started a new project. Um, and then I, when I found out that Upcountry, you know, found a publisher that was about a year and a half ago. And so I, at that point, I was at maybe the halfway mark with the second novel. And so I knew, you know, I had to finish at least a draft before all this PR, you know, machinery started rolling for upcountry. And um, I have that draft now. And so there's a little bit of pressure um, and it's, it's a little, you know, my agent is very, very anxious to see it. 
Um, and I think that we want to, you know, maybe maximize whatever buzz has happened, you know, through Upcountry. But um, I'm in the process right now of revising that second novel. And, um, you know, I'm trying to do it by, let's say, early February. So there's a little bit of, of that pressure, but um, I don't definitely don't feel the kind of pressure that I'm sure, you know, the young writer that you were alluding to earlier um, is feeling. And I, and I think that when I think about it all, yes, you know, would I have liked to have published a book earlier? Sure. But I'm kind of grateful that I'm you know, my first book is coming out with an indie press, you know, um, and I and without that big kind of expectation pushed behind me, because I am, you know, aware of writers who, you know, had the big buzz. Right. And I think it would be kind of worse um, to like not even know really, you know, how difficult it can be or how slow the process can be. And then your expectation is like, oh, every book's going to have this kind of, you know, big kind of push behind it and it may not happen. And then the expectations of that kind of push, if your sales don't, you know, warrant it, you may not get a second book deal. Like I am, you know, and I'm sure you are too aware of those sort of like big success stories and um, this big book and then then you never hear about them again. So I'd rather be in the position where, you know, that I am because, um, and I, there's no guarantee my second book will sell, you know, I'm fully aware of that because of what I've gone through. So it's tempered my expectations, I think in, in a kind of healthy way. Yeah. writing my first novel right now so partly you know for the podcast and for the people who are interested in your process but partly selfishly I'm really interested to talk about your writing process with Upcountry and with this new project Um, so I'll just maybe give the listeners a little bit of a summary of Upcountry Um, so this book came out on November 7th Um, it takes three different main perspectives one is Claire who is the sort of Manhattan transplant coming into upstate New York to buy this house and renovate it from April the other main one of the other main characters um, who is selling the house that's been in her family for generations uh, out of necessity really and is the single mother of many young children and then there's Anna who is uh, a Korean adoptee by white parents who has uh, been born into this uh, sort of religious sect cult community called the Eternals um, and is pregnant with her first child. And so we see throughout the course of, you know, the catalyst being the the move to upstate New York for Claire and her husband, who's an artist, the buying of this house, um, as the, this is the catalyst for all three of these characters kind of swirl around each other um, and to be moved in various ways by the town itself and the place as a character, which I'm very excited to talk about. Um, so, you know, going into writing this book that has these different perspectives, uh, you know, something I noticed in in the reading of this, and I'll just say this was one of those books that <laughs> as soon as I was about a page in, I was like, oh shit, I don't know how to write. Because <laughs> oh, no. I was like, this is so good. Oh, <laughs> this is like so, and, and no, I mean, and one of the things too that I think is helpful when you've gone through the process of publishing a book is you know that no first draft is perfect. And so of course, you know, there's time that goes into this and there's multiple eyes on a book before anyone sees it. Um, so no one should look at a published book and be like, oh, I can do this because you you can just take some time, but it's so brilliant. Um, and, you know, I think I wrote in my notes somewhere about the pacing, you know, this is not a slow burn novel. This is a forest fire all the way through. And I was so <laughs> impressed by the way that you tell these stories and the way they interlock and move each other forward. Um, you know, thinking about the, the multiple perspectives here, were they all connected together in the inception or did you find ways to connect them later? How did you juggle having these three characters? Um, well, first of all, thank you for that. Um, and secondly, um, you do know how to write because I, <laughs> I, I read your story collection and it's funny. I mean, there were there were moments in there, especially, I mean, the title story and, and burrowing. Oh, I just was like, 
I had that feeling of like, oh. how did she do this? You know, so there, it's just, well, that's very we, kind. Thank you. Yeah, no, we have, it's just different voices and different approaches. And I'm, I always admire people who, you know, writers who can do things that I can't imagine doing, you know? Um, so, but as far as <laughs> upcountry um, and balancing the three voices, I mean, no, I did not know how to do that at, at all. It wasn't, it really, because this was my first novel, you know, and I'd only written stories prior to that, really. Um, so, and I envisioned actually the first chapter was going to be a standalone short story. Um, but then um, one of my better readers, my good friend Adam, was like, I think this can be a novel. And so it was this challenge that he, you know, really kind of set me up to do. Um, and from there, I mean, Claire was the first um character that I, I thought about. But I'd say the seed of it was even before that, you know, I was in the Catskills, I spent two summers there, and I got to really um, immerse myself in the community and the milieu. And um, I used to take these walks, and I saw on one of these walks, like, the house that basically I describe as April's house, you know, there was this pool that it was, it was drained and dilapidated, and the house, you know, clearly was um, going through some kind of you know, financial downfall or, or the owners of the house rather. And so, you know, that along with the fact that it was shortly after the 2008, you know, housing crisis and the fact that I, at, at that time, having left fashion and New York was drifting a little too and quote, you know, without a home. Um, all of those sort of themes were percolating. Um, and then I, I encountered a woman who was very much like Claire and, and um, very annoying and kind of prickly and uptight. <laughs> and so, you know, I just imagined this one scene. And then it once I knew that I had to um, extrapolate the whole thing into a larger, you know, story, um, the challenge honestly was uh, how to not let it spin out too much, you know, um, how do you sort of convey a whole community, you know, and, a, and the insularity of a small town without, you know, necessarily popping into everyone's heads. Um, and I think the fact that I did multiple POVs was in a way an extension of my comfort level with um, writing stories, you know, um, but I also like the prismatic effect of having multiple characters, you know, weigh in. It's fun, you know. Um, I can, now I'm in April's head or I'm in Anna's head and they're all very different characters. So, um, and oftentimes they're looking at the same situation, but through their lens. And I always um, find that interesting in both movies and, and in literature. Um, yeah, but it took, it just, it, it took a lot of drafts, Aaron. It really did, you know, um, and Anna's character initially wasn't as, you know, much of an equal third initially, um, as, as the other two women, but she became so later. Yeah. And you're also a short story writer. So how did your process change between the way that you might go about writing a short story and revising a short story versus uh, a novel? Well, it's fun. it's been a minute since I've <laughs> written a story now, you know, um, now I'm just writing novels, I guess. But with a short story, you know, as you're probably well aware, length, you know, is versatile, you know, um, and there's there's a lot more opportunity, I think, to perfect a short story, you know, um, but there's more pressure in the fact that it has to be, you know, kind of really um, fully there in fewer words. Um, the challenge with a novel and the, the, the good parts about it are the fact that you have enough room to sort of roam around and explore certain themes and it can be playful and you know that it's not going to be perfect. You know, it can't be, you know, anything that, that large. Um, but I, it's, I kind of, I, I like, I don't know. I like writing novels, I guess, you know, um, although like sounds sort of not the right word because it's also <laughs> torture, <laughs> but I think um, it's, it's interesting because now now that I'm at this point of revising the second novel, um, once that's done, there in the back of my head, it's like, well, what is next? You know, um, and I'm not sure. You know, um, I am kind of curious to see how I would 
do going back to a short story form, you know, like maybe I want to relook at some stories that I, you know, put away and never published. I don't know. You know, um, I think uh, the main thing is, yeah, that that uh, just a short story, you know, kind of has to be like it has to land, you know, fully. Yeah. A novel is a bigger playground, I think, but Definitely. it also can get it can get uh, out of your hands pretty easily. <laughs> Oh God! As I'm finding, at least. Yeah. How far are you on it in your novel? Oh, I'm really close. So I have a goal of finishing it by the end of December. Oh uh, my and I think God. I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna hit that goal if I work hard. But it has ballooned. It is a disaster. It's. Uh, you know, I started off as a short story writer primarily, right? And I've had this idea for this novel for many years. Um, it's sort of based on a previous job of mine, um, and and sort of has a cult element, which is you know a mm. conversation with yours in some ways. <laughs> And I thought, well, you know, a novel only has to be like 70,000 words, probably, right? Like 200 pages. I'm now approaching the 400 page mark and I've got at least 60 pages to go. Okay. <laughs> it's a disaster. So I'm going to have to cut a lot, but I'm an overwriter. It's a lot easier to be an overwriter when you're writing a story, though, and you cut two pages versus, you know, yeah. 40 pages or something. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Okay. Because um, I'm... I'm not an overwriter and that's mm -hmm. and in a way that's why I'm so slow, you know, yeah. and it's, it's not, I wish I could be an overwriter. I felt like I used to be when I was, you know, younger. Um, mm -hmm. Now I'm just, I, I peck away, you know, and um, I do think that then when it comes to revising, it's a, a little easier for me. Like now, you know, I, I wrote a draft of the second novel. I, I sent it to my better readers like three months ago and they, they mm -hmm. got back to me two months ago. Now I'm processing. Um, but, uh, and I, and I have friends who are more like overwriters like you and it's just like, Oh God, you know, what yeah. do I do? You know? Um, and, and it's almost like the first draft for you guys is less onerous than the revision stage. I'm, I'm not sure. And I hope that's not the case for you, but it's always a baggy thing. You know, mm -hmm. it's just always this, this like weird thing that you have to sculpt and shape, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. I'm curious how for you between the first novel and the second novel, were there things that you learned in the process of writing the first that influenced your process for the second, whether in drafting or in the revision stage? Yeah, for sure. Um, first of all, I, didn't want to have the, the same challenges of, you know, um, balancing multiple voices. So in this, the second novel is just one protagonist, you know. Um, and I also um, am aware, like, so I don't outline, you know what I mean? I don't really, I, I start with something like an image or, you know, a character, um, and I kind of see where it takes me. And then at around the 30,000 mark, you know, that's when I sort of have to step back. Um, and this is what I learned from the first draft because, the, I mean, the first novel. With the first novel, I was just spinning out, you know, and writing a bunch of different characters, you know, and um, thinking, oh, well, the fact that they're all in the Catskills is enough to sort of contain it. And I sort of realized, no, you know, you do need to have some kind of an arc and some kind of a plot, I think, you know, in a novel. Um, and so with the second one, um, I, I knew like, okay, you have X amount of words. Now you really have to figure out what your themes are. And even though I don't outline, I, what I kind of do is I just write on index cards, you know, potential scenes, you know, in my mind or, um, situations that I could see happening. Um, just random scenes, you know, that might pop out at me and, then I move them around and, and sort of like, like hands on Gretel breadcrumbs, you know, it's sort of like, do they lead to a narrative? You know what I mean? These weird disparate sort of things. Um, and sometimes I follow that and, and other times it's just enough to kind of comfort me to, to get me to keep going. And then, you know, something else might occur. So, um, but every novel, every project creates its own set of unique problems, you know? <laughs> yeah. The one that I'm hoping to do after this is actually a multiple perspective novel. So oh. I'm hoping uh, that your book will serve as maybe a little bit of a guide on how to not spin out too, too hard on that. Yeah. No, you have to figure out, you know, who are your, yeah, who are the main protagonists and what are the main themes and try to yeah, yeah. use those when, as boundaries when you were writing upcountry uh was there anything that you read in the drafting process that gave you any insight or influence anything in the book 
Hmm. I mean, it's so hard to um, remember what I was reading, you know, like eight years ago. But one thing I will say, um, and this was after it was drafted and um, I was in the submission process, um, the book kept getting more and more um, darker and the whole like gothic aspect actually was not as present in the first draft. Um, and so through different revisions and iterations and getting feedback from editors, you know, um, I just realized, okay, I got to amplify the gothic aspect of, of this. And so at some point, you know, when I was writing the Anna sequences, once she returns to the community, um, I reread Rosemary's Baby um, mm -hmm. by Ira Levin. Have you ever read it? I've it's not. So, no. Oh God, it's shockingly good. Okay. And it's I'm going to so, write it down. Yeah. <laughs> It's, you know, I, I think it was written maybe in the early 70s, maybe 1972. Um, and, you know, I think most people know the movie, but the movie is really closely based on the book. And it is shocking how modern the prose is, you know, it's really, really good. Um, and so I just kind of, I wanted that feeling of, of, of how, you know, Rosemary was starting to feel like maybe this community, you know what I mean, isn't yeah. quite what, you know, I, I thought it was. I yeah. can definitely, yeah, I could definitely see that coming through in, in the uh, latter portions of Anna's story. Uh, I'm curious, you know, as I mentioned, I'm, I'm sort of writing a book right now about cults or where cult is involved in the book. And I've been reading a lot of cult literature and it seems in, you know, cult documentaries, all that stuff that you tell yourself is research. <laughs> um, and it seems like uh, cults are having a, a moment right now in media and in literature and in the consciousness in America. And I'm curious for you what that, and, and I don't know if we want to call the Eternals a, a cult necessarily, or if you would, but I think it fits in that sort of uh, borderline community where faith becomes very strict and very structured in a way that, um, you know, really affects people's lives. So what was what was the interest in writing that kind of story? Well, I mean, cults have they cults have had a moment now for you know, yeah. decades. <laughs> Since you like know? the 60s, right? Yeah. Many years. Yeah. 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 Um, and like you, I mean, it's not, you know, research for me to go down that rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. It's just fascinating. I'm always, I'm so fascinated because I think I'm such an individualistic, independent person. It blows my mind into you know, the concept of, of someone or peoples who would want to be, you know, told, you know, this is what you must do and to live under, you know, someone else's doctrine. Um, but I can see the security, you know, in that um, and not having to make your own decisions in the sense of maybe community, you know, that these people must feel. Um, so in my book, The Eternals, they, yeah, you could call them a quasi-cult. Um, it, they're sort of loosely based on an actual group that I don't want to name, you know, but that I encountered when I was in the Catskills. Um, but I don't even have to name them because like, you know, you, I'm sure, you know, there are so many, there are so many, they're, they're the big ones that, you know, everyone has, has heard about, um, you know, the Amish and the Mennonites and, you know, whatever, Nixium and, and Scientologists. And then there's so many fringe little ones too, that, you know, may not have branches all over the world or across America, but they're, they're definitely a cult. And I think, you know, um, I just am, I, I think for my novel, the, the purpose they serve was not only to provide like a very patriarchal, um, insular, you know, um, influence over Anna's life, you know, um, they, they other her, you know, because she didn't, I guess she, you know, <laughs> um, didn't quite do what she was supposed to do and she disobeyed, but um, they are also othered, you know, by the town. And um, I wanted to show that sense of like a, a community turning on itself usually occurs when um, it becomes fractured based on prejudices or misunderstandings. Um, and uh, I wanted to, to show that and um, embody that, I guess, through, through this religious fringe group that's in the book. Yeah, I mean, they also bring in an element that I think is present throughout all of the characters and throughout the narrative that really appealed to me uh, and that I found interesting, which was this idea of luck versus fate 
and curses. Uh, the idea that, you know, fate can be a kind of curse or that certain people or certain places can be cursed. Um, and then also, you know, a lot of this book is about class disparity too, right? It starts with the catalyst of April not being able to afford the upkeep of her, you know, generations long family home. And then Claire, this wealthy woman and, and her wealthy husband coming in to sort of uh, take over and then uh, that house sort of being a site of what people might think is a curse or some kind of fate story. Um, do you see, you know, and this might be one of those like uh, unintentional connections that I, I sort of just processed myself, but do you see any relationship between this idea of luck versus fate, the, the, the forces that shape our lives and class or upbringing. Um, you know, something I noticed in the novel was that April, the you know less wealthy character, doesn't seem to believe in the supernatural at all. And Claire is a lot more swayed by it, right? She goes to a psychic at one point. She, uh, you know, has what might be called ghostly encounters that she tries to make sense of. Was that an intentional connection for you? Yeah, yeah, because... Um... <laughs> class is based on luck, <laughs> you know, it's what we're born into or, or, you know, perhaps what we, you know, um, decline into, you know, um, definitely. I mean, I'm, I'm always, I've always been conscious of class because of the fact that, you know, I grew up here as an immigrant, you know, and, um, we had no money, you know, initially my, my father had to sort of start over, you know, when, when we first moved here and then we became middle-class, you know, and then as a young adult living in New York city and making money, it was like, Oh, you know, and in America, the idea of class is different than let's say the UK, you know, um, I think here it's, just, it's very much based on money, you know? Um, but so, you know, that was always a theme that I'm, you know, cognizant of, and especially, you know, as I said, around that time, shortly after the recession. Um, but luck and fate, for sure, for me, are also really compelling questions and themes, um, because it affects everyone's lives, you know. And yet, like, a lot of people don't talk about it, you know. I feel like um, the idea, it's almost, when you talk about luck or fate or curses, a lot of people, I think, you know, sort of consider that like astrology or they roll their eyes like, oh, this is so, it's not sort of scientific. You know, it doesn't fall under the realm of something you can analyze. But that's precisely why it fascinates me, you know, because it is this sort of amorphous energy, you know, that absolutely affects everyone's lives. Um, and yet no one, you know, really talks about it. And um there's, there's no way to contain it, you know, but it's there, you know, it's absolutely there. Um, and it's interesting because in, in your stories too, um, there, there's an idea of like places embodying, you know what I mean? Emotions or um, containing tragedies, you know? Um, and I, I believe that. I, um, I do believe in spooks. I do believe in spooks. <laughs> I I um I I feel that there are places that contain um uncomfortable um residue, you know, from previous events. Yeah. Mm. I do. Yeah, and it, it is interesting that you know, I think that there is this tendency to say like, oh, ghosts aren't real and, you know, this is astrology type, like new age stuff, right? Yeah. But it's very baked into our ideas of what people, what we perceive people to deserve. Um, and I think that mm. comes in a little too. So some another thing I, I caught myself writing in my notes was this idea of penance and how Anna, you know, in her religious community has a kind of, uh, you know, religious penance, but there's also secular penance and there's a kind of masochism in certain ways that, that takes place uh, based on what the characters feel they deserve, based on what people around them think they deserve and how they treat them and how that shapes their lives, right? So it's, it's I find it funny that we discount a lot of these things as sort of woo-woo when it also is very baked into like uh, American society and how we treat yeah, people. Totally, totally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, and you know, the idea of penance too is just, it's it's guilt-based, mm -hmm. you know, and it um, there's a sort of, yeah, that question of you know, do I deserve all this good luck, for instance, or, you know, did I deserve all this terrible luck? You know, like, what did I do, you know, to quote, deserve this when oftentimes it's nothing that you did, you know? Um, I think that's why 
you know, frankly, a lot of people embrace ideologies, you know, like religion or, you know, sort of get involved in, you know, cult-like groups is because the I, I truly believe the world um, and our fates are really fluid, <laughs> that there's no, you know, specific answer to the way of, of how anyone should live their lives, you know? Um, and I, it's terrifying, you know, to, to not know, but that's the experience of living for me, you know? Um, and that's kind of in some ways the joy too, you, you know, like surprises can be wonderful. They don't always have to be um, shocking or terrible. Yeah. And one of the things that I think that we do uh, as people and especially as writers is use story as an organizing method to make sense of the things that happen in our lives, right? This is, this might be a kind of a foolish question, but in the end of the book, do you feel that your characters get what they quote unquote deserve? and Or was that a consideration for you? Mm. It wasn't a consideration, but in a weird way, obviously I, I had to have thought about it, you know, because well, why did they end up, each of them, in their, you know, respective um, conclusions, at least, you know, where the novel ends? Um, it's more like, did it feel, did their fates end up feeling um, plausible? You know what I mean? Um, and yet um, convey a certain growth in each of their um, respective characters. Um, and I that's that what that's more what I was aiming for. Um, yeah. yeah. But yeah, I think I think April deserved what she got. <laughs> mm. Well, it, I mean, it does strike me that to some degree, you know, the way that we like and I don't think that yours is a simplistic story whatsoever. But we like these stories of people who do bad things. Yeah. Have bad fates. People who do good things or people who are sort of pushed down in society. They get to come back up again at the end. And that is to some degree what happens, I think, to each of the characters. Right. They find their own paths forward in a way. Um that does represent what came before those endings, right? Yeah, but then I think, um, you know, if you want to write a story that's a little more complex, right, It's that's not like always an equal correlation. Like I know the average reader wants to have that satisfaction of feeling like, okay, this person, quote, got what they deserve. But I always, even in my reading, and, and I try in my writing as well, sometimes to go against the grain of that a little bit too. Right. So that it's not completely expected, but it's still satisfying. Yeah. place as a character, right? The town is called Caliban. And I'm curious about your, uh, I actually Googled to make sure this wasn't just like the name of a real place. Um, but it seems so fitting for the darkness and some of the animalisticness of this story. Uh, it also evokes, right, Shakespeare in the Tempest. Yeah. And uh, there's a storm and water that plays a significant role at, in the right. ending of the story. So can you talk a little bit about why you chose that name and what that means to you? Yes. Well, um, so initially the town was called something really generic and stupid for a long, long time. And then, you know, again, when I was trying to sort of amp up the gothic elements, I was looking for um, names and, you know, situations that could be a little bit more evocative. And so um, Caliban was actually a name suggested to me by a friend. Um, and I was like, oh, that is good, you know? Um, and it's because, as you, for all those, you know, um, reasons that you cited, but also, you know, Caliban um, was the initial inhabitant of the island where, you know, then he got colonized by Prospero. And it, it's, that is also there in, in the story, this sort of feeling of resentment of locals, you know, um, towards these gentrifying newcomers coming into the town, you know, um, and uh, yeah, so that that was also that element. And, and I like the sound of it, you know, it's got like cat, that hard C. Um, and it seems like a name that might be, you know, a, a real name in that, that region, because there are um, a lot of um, sort of darker sounding um, town names there. But yeah. That was how I got there. <laughs> I love that. Um, 
Can you talk a little bit about why you decided to set this in, I think it's 2009, 2010 is where most of these events take place. Um, you know, you mentioned the housing crisis and the recession, and that definitely, you know, plays a role in, in the catalyst of the story in the house that a lot of these things take place in. Uh, were there other reasons why you chose that time period? Yeah, um, because of Hurricane Irene, you know, um, which... Um, that I don't think it's a spoiler to say that the novel sort of culminates, you know, in this storm. Um, and um, that was in 2011. And so I initially actually the novel spread out a lot longer. I think it started around 2007. Um, and then um, I got a lot of feedback from editors that they just felt like it sprawled out too long. So then I had to compress the whole thing, you know, into more like a year and a half. Um, and that was hard because the novel um, is so season oriented, you know, like all the, these events occur, you know, let's say on 4th of July, you know, and then this happens, you know, on New Year's Eve. And then I would have to, in compressing, you know, flip and condense some of that. So that was a challenge. But um, yeah. There's so many complicated reasons, both, uh, you know, I, I, th I heard you mention in another interview too, right, that uh, pre-Trump, pre a mm. lot of the political divisiveness we have now, there was more of a sense in small towns that people from multiple perspectives would interact uh, peacefully or would have to engage with each other in some way, whereas now it might feel a little bit more separated off. Um, and so I... <laughs> I think it's silly that every time I and I, I my students respond this way too when we talk about you know why things are said in the 2010s which is you know when they were children they're like oh is it so they don't have to talk about texting <laughs> but <laughs> there are so many so, yeah well because uh, social media texting I think there's cell phones that have that things happen with but uh, that's not a big part of of this story did that make it. Was that ever a consideration? Did that make it easier for you to tell the story, not having to think about who might be communicating in what ways uh, online? Um, no, you know, and there's a little bit of texting um, in the novel, you know, I mean, because that's been around. Um, but it was it really for me was I wanted the novel to be contained between the recession, you know, to sort of amplify those themes of class disparity, you know, economic disparity. Um, and then I knew, you know, um, I, I think very early on, I was I was fascinated by um, the idea of having a storm, you know, be kind of the culminating incident. And a lot of that is because when I actually lived there, you know, we would drive around, there were parts of the Catskills that, and this was in 2015, you know, that were still, um, you know, devastated by the effects of Irene, you know, only four years earlier. And, um, and I would, you know, find out, oh, you know, what happened? And, um, oh, you know, how did this, you know, which areas were affected? It was fascinating to me, you know, and it's kind of interesting because now I live in New Orleans where I have mm -hmm. to worry about storms every summer, you know? Um, yeah. So do you ever find, it's sometimes interesting how, what you write ends up almost predicting what, what your actual in real life events, you know, yeah. end up being. Isn't that weird? Yeah. <laughs> I, I attended a talk with Otessa Mashve, the novelist, uh, and she talked about like, she's, she's a very, I think a little bit more, uh, open to superstition, especially around her writing. But she talked about how events in both her first and second novels after those books were written, uh, real life correlations happened with people <laughs> that she loved. Um, and so I think about that a lot of like, what am I bringing into being? Here? Right. Yeah. Because <laughs> uh, yeah. it does. It does happen that way sometimes. Uh, what is what has that been like for you? Have you had any moments in uh, either Project Upcountry or the new one where you feel like you maybe wrote something into being? by accident? Oh, yeah, totally. And it's, it's so weird that we're talking about this because the other day, um, I was biking and I remember um, at one point when, uh, and, and this is a scene that I actually, you know, is no, I cut from a, up country, but there was one scene where Anna was pushing a baby stroller along, you know, um, and it gets stuck in grass and, and it flips over. And literally, I remember this was years ago when I was writing this, as soon as I finished that scene, I had to go meet my boyfriend, you know, somewhere and I was on the bike and but the bike hit a rock and I flipped over and I was like, oh my gosh. you know, like that was <laughs> yeah. that's just the most eh, like, like mm -hmm. immediate. And I remember I even posted about it. I was like, this is so weird. But yeah, mm -hmm. like, um, you know, the other yeah incident offhand is, is what I already you know mentioned, which is the, the whole fascination with storms 
back in 2015, I had no, you know, thought that I would move to New Orleans, you know, and then, and then I did. And now, yeah, it's, it's a part of my life and it's sadly going to be a part of a lot of our lives. Yeah. I mean, I, I just moved away from living in Florida for five years in the panhandle. So got to experience Hurricane Michael hit, uh, when I lived there for two months. So right off the bat, got to experience some of that. And yeah, it is, uh, you start to get really comfortable with the hurricane tracker for many months of the year. Yeah. I mean, yeah. comfortable or just sort of, you know, used to it, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Um, how do you find that New Orleans and the landscape and the history and the culture there is influencing your current writing? Um, it, I don't know that it's manifesting in my writing right now, like not in terms of me writing about it, um, but I, I, what I do like about living here, which I think is helpful for my writing is, um, compared to New York where I lived for so many years, um, it's, it's quieter here and that helps me to focus. Like I really, really, and I I wrote, um, I think an essay about this. Um, but the fact that I left New York city, you know, um, in a weird way for me, I felt has been beneficial to my ability to focus on my writing more because when I lived there, um, and I'm, and you know, I'm not saying people <laughs> who live there can't write because clearly so many writers are from, you know, New York city and Brooklyn. But for me at the time that I lived there, the energy of the place and the fact that there's so much you can do, you know, there's so many distractions um, and it's hard to find a peaceful, quiet place, you know? Um, So I just feel like I'm able to do that better here. Yeah. Um, Is there anything that you want to tell us about your new project? Anything you want to share about that? Um, Sure. (laughs) I'm excited about it. Uh, It's very different. Um, It takes place about 10 or 12 years in a future Los Angeles that has been infiltrated by the um, Korean plastic surgery industry. Um, and my protagonist is a an investigative journalist who encounters a terrorist group of sort of anti, you know, um, beauty enhancement. Um, and uh, let's see, there's sort of climate change um, <laughs> uh, and it ends up with reproductive cloning. So it's it's kind of an examination of you know, the things that are um, obsessing me right now about the idea of technology and the future, you know. That sounds really exciting. I can't wait to read it as I'm confident <laughs> it will get picked up and I will be able to buy I hope so. it as I a book so. someday. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, is there anything we didn't cover, anything that you wish that I had asked about or that you haven't been asked about in the interview yet? No, I think you've been pretty pretty thorough okay. yeah um I mean I'm curious I just I, I sure. want to know about your novel I, sure I, yeah I don't mind sharing a little bit um so it's loosely based uh, in between my MFA and going for my PhD I spent a year as basically like a power receptionist in a very high-end hair salon in Nashville oh my and God. uh which is you know I grew up in rural Texas very close to poverty. Uh, and so that was a really different experience, not only to be living in, you know, what I considered like a real city, which Nashville is, yeah. but uh, is continuing to grow into. And then also to spend so much time, um, you know, first of all, coming out of my MFA and being surrounded by artists, meeting the dearest friends of my life, being able to talk about writing with them and share my passion and be around people who cared about those things to being around people who like had no idea that I was a writer, didn't know how to feel about that or didn't care about any of that. Or, you know, when I got a publication, they didn't know what that meant. And um, so, so that was alienating in a way. And then also to be uh, to be and to be around people who were so underpaid, but had to keep up this appearance of being at the same level as these very wealthy clients uh, in order to gain Mm. their business. Uh, That was a disparity that I thought was really interesting uh, in the beauty industry. And we also, I mean, I think for me, the most oppressive thing was like having to wear black, uh, as you do in a lot of beauty salons. and I'm a very colorful person and very individual in my dress. And I found that just like soul sucking. I was so upset about it all the time. <laughs> um, so, so it came a little bit out of that and, and things I observed in the beauty industry through that. Um, but then the novel takes a twist on that. And uh, that the salon that the narrator works at is a catalyst for getting involved in this sort of new age 
cult that is supposed to be about spiritual transformation through this pill. Um, and then it actually ends up like so much of new age, anything being about weight loss and thinness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so the narrator's dealing with, you know, addiction, eating disorders going into this. And unlike you, you know, you said you're, you're fascinated by cults because you're such an individualist and you don't understand how people could be involved in them. I've always felt that I was very susceptible to cults <laughs> and to scams and, and all of that. And um, so I think part of what got me interested in cults as a as a theme and then in this story, what I'm trying to explore is that uh, desperate need for belonging and the ways that people take advantage of it. And um, also the, the, the allure of surrendering your life to something or someone outside of yourself, which is something that I've, you know, spent a lot of time thinking about and, and battling in various ways. Um, so I hope it's good. It's been mostly fun to write, except for all the parts where I felt like I didn't remember how to write anymore. <laughs> but <laughs> does it take place in a, in an alternate present or it takes future? place actually, uh, in 2017, very okay. shortly after the Trump election. Um, okay. and that's partially because, of um that was around the time period when I worked at the salon and I overheard a lot of you know conversations that were new at the time these divisive conversations and these uncertainties when you encountered someone uh how they might talk about things or how they might signal to you their beliefs um but also because you know the narrator in this book is sort of at the precipice of staring down this long uncertain future and reckoning with ideas of fate and luck uh And I think that at the, you know, what I felt and what I think a lot of people felt at the beginning of the Trump presidency was like, things are so bad, they're only getting worse. And we don't know how long this is going to go on for. And we just kind of have to grit our teeth and bear through it. Yeah. Uh, And so that kind of mirrors where the narrator is at emotionally in her life. Oh, so it's interesting. Yeah. Like we're, we have some, these interesting thematic overlaps Mm -hmm. between all of our, you know, novels. Um, Absolutely. But but the whole beauty, yeah, the, the beauty industry um is is really interesting to me and it's maybe because well for one thing i'm sure you know if you see like reels or tiktoks Mm -hmm. what is with the whole trend of everyone contouring their face while they're talking (laughs) you know what i mean it's just such a yeah and then like my friends have um young adolescent girls and they they i swear to god they spend four hundred dollars worth of like Mm-hmm. money on makeup they have nicer makeup than I do you yeah. know and and it's just I don't know there's something mm-hmm. I'm witnessing just you know like just culturally like what is up with that you know why why are we so fascinated by this mm-hmm. you know yeah yeah and what I observed too and, and maybe this was the the kind of salon that I was involved in at the time and sort of the way that the, the cult takes off in the book too is that uh, all of the same patriarchal beauty standards are being re- rebranded as wellness, right? Exactly. So yes. It's not about losing weight and being thin to appease a man. It's about being clean and being healthy and being pure in some way for yourself and for your longevity. And it's, you know, uh, when you put on makeup or you, you have these products that you're spending all this money on, it's not for beauty. It's for, uh, it's because they're paraben free and they're organic and they come from these yeah. like, jungles somewhere where they're, yeah. you know, mining for resources. Um, no, and-, and it's about you being, you know, confident and expressing mm-hmm. yourself. But I think I don't know. Maybe I'm cynical, but I feel like it's all it's a, it's still kind of um, a baggage or, or, or it's a boundary and it's a containment um, under like different languages. You know, mm-hmm. um, I I don't know. I, I It blows my mind that like young yeah. girls who have perfect skin already, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Just like they're into all this. And yeah. yeah, I don't know. And I think it can be fun. I mean, I have definitely bought makeup off that I saw on TikTok (laughs) that is too expensive for what it is. Right. Um, So I don't, I mean, I, I can't imagine what that would be like for me as a very insecure, you know, adolescent girl. Um, In some ways, I think it's great that they have access to these things and to these ways to make them feel confident. Uh, But there, but it's a double-sided coin, right? It's like, it's always on the edge of, um, you know, something darker than your own choices, I feel. And, you know, what I witnessed too in the beauty industry a lot was that a lot of this wellness language was a way to cover racism um, mm. and definitely to cover sizeism, but I feel like that's mm-hmm. to be expected. Um, but this idea of like the the wellness brand ideal being this like tall, thin, blonde, white woman uh, was used against 
people who didn't fit that ideal um, to to sort of try to shape them as as best they could into that box. And then when you couldn't, uh, then then you were just sort of in this constant conflict with your surroundings. Um, yeah. That sucks. Yeah. No, I mean, I agree with you that like uh, the idea of makeup, you know, can be a creative outlet for sure. You know, I mean, and they should like when when you're super, super young, that's the time, you know, to just like, ooh, that's garish, but okay, you know, have fun yeah. with it, you know. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm like you, I'm just, I'm kind of questioning, you know, in the second novel too, like the, just the idea of beauty, you know, the whole cosmetic culture, wellness mm-hmm. culture, um, you know, is it freeing or is it, you know, just another like form of um, adopting to, you know, certain societal um, rules. Yeah. 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 And I think what's complicated is that sometimes uh, fitting into those societal rules can be freeing because you're not then marginalized for whatever way you don't fit in. Yeah. Um, Yeah. yeah. I'm very excited about your new book. Yeah. And uh, I can't wait to read it. (laughs) I can't wait for you to be able to read it. So yeah. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed for both of us. Absolutely. That was Aaron Slaughter's conversation with Chin Sun Lee. You can check out a copy of Chin Sun's novel, Upcountry, from Unnamed Press. And Aaron's most recent book was the short story collection, A Manual for How to Love Us, available all over. And if you're interested, you can check out our books too, over at autofocuslit.com books which is also where you can find that t-shirt with the podcast logo on it. If you want to support the press, you want to support the podcast, I trust you know how to do that by now. Otherwise, that's it. Thanks for listening. Till next time.